just come to church with a good attitude. So. <laughs> happens, doesn't it? All right, good to be with you. Uh, you know, when uh, uh, we had this uh, elder deacon retreat uh, a couple of months back, uh, one of the things that uh, they did that I observed was do a journey wall and a comment really on uh, what was going on and the blessings of God during that time. And it was one of the more edifying times that I've had in a long, long time just observing how the Lord has blessed this place and uh, the lifelong friendships that are here and uh, the way in which you've grown and sometimes in the midst of heartache and uh, it was a real life experience for me. So uh, even though I can't participate in this, I, I certainly encourage you to do this as well because it, it was a, a real edifying experience for me. And uh, so was last night, by the way, at Geneva Presbyterian Church. That was a terrific concert that uh, a good number of us heard last night. Beautiful time. Well, we're in James, our place of residence today is a short passage, uh, uh, James chapter 4, verses 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. So um, we'll be looking at these verses today, and it's not hard to discover what they're talking about, and so I'll be reading them as we go along. You know, a number of years ago, in fact, it was probably, well, it was well over 20 years ago, my youngest son, whose name was Aaron, he was uh, here on Easter Sunday, and uh, he was playing in a youth football league as a, you know, 11, 12-year-old boy type thing. And the coach of, this, uh, of his team happened to be a very take-charge, vocal African-American who actually played collegiate ball at University of Nebraska. And so uh, when he talked, everybody sort of listened, and he was able to uh, uh, get some uh, good effort out of his team. But there was one particular game in which they were being pushed around in the first half. They were lethargic. They weren't moving very well. And at halftime, you know, we parents kind of sat in and listened to the game as I was watching it. And uh, listened to the coach talk, and he looked at uh, his young boys, and he said, uh, you boys are playing like your little sisters. He says, what you need is some attitude. What I want you to do is play so hard and run so fast that in the second half, you destroy their will to continue. And then he looked him right in the eye and says, do you understand me? And all those boys said, Yes, sir, right, going. And they went out in the second half, and they played a good game, and they ended up winning. And after the game, he had another talk with his uh, young boys there, and he, he uh, said, you did well. You played hard, you played fairly, and you won the game. And then he said something very special. He says, I want you to leave the attitude on the field I want you to go across the field, and I want every one of you to shake hands with every other member of that team, telling them they really did play well. And then he said, and when you go home today, 
I want you to go home as kind, humble, Christian gentlemen. Because if your mama tells me that you had an attitude at home, I will not be your friend next week at practice. And then he looked at him and said, do you understand? And they said, yes, sir. So I don't remember what my own son's attitude was like that following week, but the fear of God was placed in him by the coach itself. You know, an attitude is a frame of mind that affects behavior. An athlete, for instance, with a competitive attitude is going to be aggressive. A student with a teachable attitude is going to be attentive. And a teenager with a sour attitude is going to be distant. So commendable attitudes develop us. They enable us to grow. Detrimental attitudes destroy what really God wants to do in our own life. Now, in our brief passage today, James highlights two destructive attitudes. Uh, He invites us in a not-so-subtle manner to intentionally avoid them. And the first one is an attitude of autonomy. Now, autonomy is simply freedom from outside control. Uh, But we also know that uh, autonomy is a relative commodity. Uh, A student uh, has less autonomy than a teacher. A child, less autonomy than a a parent. An employee has less autonomy than the employer. But no human being has absolute autonomy. And unfortunately, we oftentimes live under the false presumption that we do. And James sees this in those to whom he writes, and he denounces that kind of spirit. He says in verse 13, James 4.13, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. So we have a starting point, today or tomorrow, a destination, the city. Time frame, one year. An objective, make a profit. Only one problem. God was never consulted. There's no reference to it. In Deuteronomy, you don't need to turn to it. I'm going to read some verses there. You can just listen to them. But in Deuteronomy chapter 8, you find the last farewell speech that Moses gives the children of Israel when they're right there on the verge of entering into and conquering uh, the people that were in the promised land and taking over. And he shares them with us just on the east side of the Jordan River, right before he passes the baton to Joshua, who will lead the conquest. But this is what he says to the people of Israel. He says, beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I am commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud and you will Forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. 
And the implication is this. None of us ever forget our houses. We don't forget our gold. Uh, we, don't, we don't forget the things that matter to us. Uh, it says in verse, uh, in Jeremiah 2, can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride forget her attire? And the assumed answer of that question is no. Now, I've been to a lot of weddings. Chances are you have as well. I've officiated at a lot of weddings. I'm performing one next week for my good friend's son here. Uh, but I've never, ever in my lifetime seen a bride come down that center aisle on the arm of her dad without having, with forgetting to fix her hair and put her makeup on. Just doesn't happen. You know, and so what it means is that we remember as people what we want to remember. We remember the things that are important to us. And that means if we ever forget God, the propensity to forget God uh, means that uh, we're not, and, and then to operate unilaterally means that it's not a mental flaw. It's a moral flaw in our character because we remember what we want to remember. We cannot claim absent-mindedness when we forget about God. It's just a statement of our own independence. Now think with me for just a moment here. One of the names of God is Yahweh. Uh, in the Old Testament, in your Bibles, in my Bible, it's pronounced Jehovah, but it's really Yahweh. And it has that four radicals in the Hebrew language, Y-H-W-H. And Yahweh means I am. And you say, well, I am what? And I think James is saying right here, you supply the object. Are you weak? I am strength. Are you poor? I am rich. Are you hurting? I am comfort. Are you lonely? I am friend. Are you sick? I am health. Are you foolish? I am wisdom. Are you dying? I am life. Uh, we should never forget God anyway, and let me tell you why. And the credit uh, for this insight really goes to a man named Jonathan Kahn. But the word Yahweh means I am. And that means whenever you introduce yourself, uh, you're, all, you're say, I am Joe. I am Cindy. Uh, you're always introducing yourself and you say God's name with it. I am Yahweh Joe. Yahweh Pete. Yahweh Cindy. I am Cindy. I am Joe. I am Pete. And we always say God's name first. So whenever... You introduce yourself to someone, you're pronouncing God's name even before you mention your own name. And so we should never, ever forget God. Um, James highlights our lack of autonomy, by the way, in verse 14. He says, you don't know what your life is going to be like tomorrow. And it's true. You know, we can recall the past, but we cannot foretell the future. 
And uh, St. Augustine, who lived back in the 400s, you know, he, he said this, and it's, it's rich. Listen to this. He says, God will not suffer us to have the knowledge of things to come. For if we saw our prosperity, we'd be careless. And if we saw our adversity, we'd be senseless. You know, there have been a few years in my own life that um, I wouldn't have signed up for had I known what was coming. Uh, And if we were able to hit a delete key every time we had a bad experience and just kind of leapfrog over it and go on, not only would we not learn very much, we wouldn't live very long because adversity is just part of the lives that we live. Uh, We've got to trust God to help us navigate the right path. We don't know what lies ahead, but we know the God that does know, and that ought to be enough. And furthermore, James says, the time will come when we won't even reach the future. He says, we're all a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. So let's not get too far ahead of ourselves when it comes to planning. You know, what God has done for you and for me He's taken life and he's divided it into bite-sized chunks called days. And if we try to chew more than one day at a time, we end up choking. So even our most detailed, even our most, I should say, even our most detailed plans must be tentative. And we're always saying, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. And James is not against setting goals, but he is decrying a self-governing spirit that refuses to acknowledge God's presence in your life every minute of every day. Okay, so avoid an attitude of, of autonomy. The second one is to avoid an attitude of arrogance, and arrogance is the outcropping of an independent spirit. Listen to what he says in verse 16. You boast in your arrogance All such boasting is evil. So arrogance is primarily what we are. Boasting is what we do because of what we are. And boasting is simply the verbalization of pride. Now, I don't want to be too hard on all of us because there are periods of time in all of our lives where we accomplish something and we're just proud. And it's okay to do a little bit of chest beating now and then. You know, it's it's okay. But we need to remember a little bit of that goes a long way in the lives of other people. We can think about it ourselves, all we want in our own solitude, but we don't need to mention it all the time. Everybody knows where we're at. You know what's interesting is that when we do forget God in our lives, when you forget God, when I forget God, we immediately assume the place of God. Augustine, again, says this in his Confessions. We were made in the image of God, and God designed us to reflect him. And then he says, even in our sin, we reflect God, but in an evil way. That's a little bit of a head-scratcher to me. I mean, how is it that in our sin, we reflect God, but do it in an evil way? What does he mean by that? Now, stay with me here. I'm going to try to explain this. Stay with me uh, just a few minutes here. 
uh, because uh, it, it'll reach the end and I think we'll understand it. But theologians take the attributes of God and they put them in two different categories. There are the communicable attributes of God and the incommunicable attributes of God. Now, we use the term communicable and incommunicable in relationship to disease. Uh, some we can attract or contract from other people and others we can't. Some are communicable and some are not. So when we talk about the communicable attributes of God, we're talking about those things that reflect his character. For instance, God is loving, he's truthful, he's patient, he's kind, and a whole lot of other attributes that he have that define his character. Uh, the incommunicable attributes of God define his being. For instance, God is omniscient. He knows everything all at once. If he didn't know it, it wouldn't exist. God is omnipotent. There's no limit to what he can do. God's not just more powerful than everybody else. He, in fact, is the source of all power. It belongs to him. And whatever power he grants us here on this earth is, uh, is on loan from him. Uh, God's omnipotence is really the basis of his sovereignty. He does what he wants to do. He has the power to do it. God is also self-sufficient. He doesn't have need of anything. He's eternal. He has no being. What could possibly bring God into being? You say, well, aren't we eternal? And the answer is, from here on out, we are. But we had a beginning in contrast to God. God gave us our beginning. Now here's the point. Because of the sin and depravity that we have to battle in the course of our lives here on earth, uh, we're not always satisfied with reflecting the communicable attributes of God. We want the incommunicable attributes of God. In other words, we, we want to be loving and kind, communicable, but we also want to be sovereign. We want to be in control of our own lives. We want to call the shots in life. We want to be the powerful ones, the all-knowing ones, the self-sufficient ones. This is just part and parcel of humanity that has fallen uh, because of the sin in our lives. Let me ask you a question. I want everybody to participate. Uh, with a quick show of hands, I, I want you to let me know whether or not you've worried at least once in your life. Okay, We're, we've, got, we've got some commonality here. Tremendous solidarity of harvest in this area here. We all battle with worry. We all battle with anxiety. And worry can be defined as a frustrated aspiration to omniscience. Uh, if I say, I know what has to happen, in this scenario, I know what needs to happen, then my worry will be proportional to the hardness of my heart that God might not get it right. That's what it is. You see, uh, when we demand the incommunicable attributes of God, we're assuming the place of God. We want to become sovereign, and God needs to become the subject, the 
the benevolent God up there that gives us whatever our hearts desire here on earth. That's what we really want. It's kind of like a 13-year-old boy commandeering the home, kind of an adolescent coup, so to speak. Uh, Let me shift for just a moment here. Uh, What if I said, I would like this to happen? You know, I'd like to go to this school, get this job, marry this girl, live in this place. I'm praying for them. I'm praying that all of this happens. But in terms of the cosmos, I'm simply a child. I don't know what's best. So I'm going to remember God. See, when you remember God, you just simply say this, as James says, if the Lord wills, I will do this or that. Now, will that, when we say if the Lord's will uh, wills, I will do this or that, does that mean that it will eliminate all the anxiety that we have? And the answer is absolutely not. But it will enable us to control it a little bit. It will reduce it so that it won't rest- destroy us. We're always going to be anxious. There's a certain amount of worry and fear and anxiety that we're going to be dealing with forever. But understanding the sovereignty of God and the depth of his love for us and the plan that he has for us will help mitigate that so that we're not overwhelmed by it. See, if you remember God, you're saying, if the Lord wills, I will do this or that. Uh, James wraps it up in verse 17, and he says, Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. And the word know here, K-N-O-W, is the key to unlocking this verse. There are two different Greek words for know. One word is called gnosko, transliterated, so to speak. Doesn't that change your life? Anyway, gnosko, okay? Gnosko means to know something by personal experience. In other words, I I know what it means to be rejected because I know what it feels like to be rejected because I have been rejected by somebody before. But then there's another word for know called oida. Now, oida is based on innate knowledge. It's a knowledge that we know by reflection. It's like saying, I know the poor have a lot of very special needs, even though I've never been poor. So it's kind of an innate knowledge that we just understand. One is experiential, the other is innate. But it's the word oida, innate knowledge, that is used here by James. So a Christian businessman, for instance, innately knows that it's wrong to make plans without considering God. He innately knows that turning a profit for selfish gain will never satisfy. He innately knows that not to to thank God for earthly success is wrong. He innately knows that it's wrong to take the blessings of God for granted. Now, there's a spiritual principle that comes out of all of this. The knowledge of what is right and the ability to do what is right creates the obligation to do what is right. And so what James is saying, the spirit of autonomy, the spirit of arrogance, they destroy. In other words, don't follow verse 13 and say, I will do this. 
follow verse 15 and say, if the Lord wills, I will do this. It's living under the realization that life only exists by the grace of God. Let me uh, give you a line that comes from Jonathan Edwards, probably the, without question in America, the greatest theologian that's ever lived. And it was way back in the 1600s, part of the Puritan era, and uh, had brains coming out of his ears almost. But uh, he put it this way, and this is really great. He says, when I get up in the morning and I say, God, everything I enjoy today, which is better than hell, is strictly because of your grace. In other words, he's saying, I deserve hell. So anything I encounter today that's better than that is strictly because of the grace of God. It's, uh, you know, what, what a way to live. <laughs> you know, when you say God willing, you know, you know, I do this God willing, it doesn't mean you're sprinkling a little bit of theological garnish on your desires here. It doesn't mean that at all or your pious jargon, it simply means I'm going to consider the Lord in everything. I'm not going to act autonomously here. I'm not going to be arrogant enough to say I know what I need to do. I'm going to really lean on God, considering God in everything. Now, it's possible uh, to overextend this idea a little bit. You know, I've been praying about this, and especially when we apply it to other people. I've been praying about this And God told me what you need to do. (laughs) You know? Uh, It happens a little bit more frequently than we want, you know? It's kind of like saying, uh, playing the role of God or being omniscient about what the other person needs to do. Can I give you a simple illustration here? I'm tell a little tiny story on my wife. <laughs> um, you know, her, her, her dad was an Air Force officer, uh, and they, he was a chaplain, and he was stationed in Japan for three years when she was just a pre adolescent, maybe entering into adolescence. As a Christian family, they got, <clears throat> they got to know the missionary community that was around there, and there was one missionary family that had a boy her age that she liked, and he liked her. Uh, during that very innocent time in life. But then one time he shows back up uh, during her college years and uh, kind of probably a bit surprising and he just lets her know that, you know, he loves her and he feels he needs to be with her and maybe even marry her, you know? And I, I, you know, she called me and talked to me about that. You know, she talked to me on the phone a little bit about it. And two things came through my mind. One is he is assuming omniscience for Suzanne. You know, I know what you're supposed to do. You know, or that kind of thing. Or, you know, if not, I know what you're supposed to do. And that's absolutely wrong. It's crazy. It's stupid. It's manipulative. And that's the first thing that I thought. The second thing that I thought is if that works then I wish I would have said it to her a week earlier. (laughs) Yeah? I mean, I mean, for, you know, the, when she was telling me all of this, I said, oh my goodness, you know, 
the, the, the lives of our four sons, uh, existence of our four sons was just hanging by ever so slender, slender a thread. Oh, man. Anyway, but in every area of life, it's all grace, isn't it? It's all grace. And when you're smitten with pride, grace brings you down because all the credit belongs to God. When you're overwhelmed with despair, grace lifts you up and makes you stronger. Uh, when you're spiritually complacent, grace scares you out of your lethargy because you've been living for something less valuable than yourself. See, grace pushes the prideful down, it lifts the despairing up, and kicks the complacent right in the rear. That's what it does. We have a wonderful God, and let's covenant together uh, not to forget him in any aspect of life. Nothing worse than feeling forgotten, is there? And Jesus knows firsthand in the severest form possible. And we know that when he was on the cross bearing our sin, he was forgotten by the Father, cosmically so. But the reason the Father forgot the Son is so that he could remember you and remember me. God says in Isaiah 49, can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Hard to imagine, but even she might possibly forget that. But God says, I will never forget you. He says, I've inscribed you on the palm of my hand. And that doesn't mean that he pulled out a magic marker and just kind of wrote your name on the palm of his hand. Uh, it literally means he engraved your name. It's like a hammer and a chisel. He engraved your name on the palm of his hand. He will never forget you. So in the security of that remembrance, uh, we can live a life of triumph. We can live a life of sweet joy and live a life of remembrance. And today we have the opportunity of doing that. Uh, thinking through as we take the, the bread and the cup, signifying his body as well as his blood, uh, the body that was given to us, the blood that was shed on our behalf, and we really go back to the roots of our own redemption when we do something like this. And so it's, uh, we do it regularly here at Harvest because it's always a good reminder. It's a time of reflection, quiet reflection, as we contemplate the blessed Lord and what he has done on our behalf. And so as the worship team uh, comes up and uh, the elements will be passed out, and please go ahead and take them as they are passed out.